Well, we are continuing our series in Job, which we've called Why? Because of the way that the suffering that we're experiencing in this pandemic um, caused by COVID is not just causing pain, but it causes us to ask these deeper questions. Why is this happening? And as we've been looking at this book of Job from the Old Testament, we've been saying that it's no exaggeration to say that Job is the single most influential text on the issue of suffering that has ever been written in history. It has comforted countless sufferers down the ages. As we see in the life of Job, a man who suffers greatly, but is able to walk through the valley of suffering and come out the other side, having been comforted and having received hope. Last week we saw, um, as it says in chapter 16 verse 2, that Job's so-called friends are in fact miserable comforters. And we saw a number of ways not to be like them and to avoid the dangers that they fell into of being miserable comforters. This week we're going to look at Job himself and look at him as an example and what it is we can learn from him about how to, to suffer well, I guess is one way of putting it. That is how to walk through the valley and to receive comfort and to receive hope in the midst of that as you come out the other side. We're going to see three things from Job this week. Don't throw away belief in God. Don't stop praying to God. And thirdly, look to your witness in heaven. Let's think first of all about don't stop believing in God. Don't throw away belief in God. The first thing to notice is that despite all of Job's suffering, at no point does he actually contemplate or allow himself to go to thinking that there is no God. He always retains his belief in God. So in verse 7 he says, Surely God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. In verse 9, he says, God assails me and tears me in his anger and gnashes his teeth at me. And then in verses 11 to 12, he says, God has turned me over to the ungodly and throw me into the clutches of the wicked. All was well, but he shattered me. He seized me by the neck and crushed me. Now, as we read those verses, they are challenging. And we need to be clear that Job is saying some things about God that actually aren't true. So he says, God, you have worn me out. You have devastated my entire household. But as we've seen in chapter one, it's more mysterious. It's more nuanced than that. God is in control of all things. But God isn't actually the one who has devastated Job's household. He has rather allowed Satan to do that. It was Satan's initiative, but God is still in control. Secondly, it's also not true that God is angry at Job and gnashes his teeth at him, as Job says. We've seen that God loves Job, and God isn't doing this to Job because he's angry at him. Job is commended by God to Satan. God says, there's no one like my servant Job. God loves Job, and again, it's a mystery as exactly why he's allowing this, but it's certainly not because he's angry. So even though Job has got things about God and his understanding of suffering and how God fits into that um, out of kilter, he hasn't got a true perspective completely. Here's the key thing. He never throws away belief in God. Now, why is that so significant? Well, of course, many people, when they're faced with suffering, reason it this way, that they can't be a good and in control God if they're suffering in the world. And therefore, they take suffering as the proof that there is no God. But in doing so, they make things far more difficult for themselves. It's been said that when belief in God becomes difficult, the tendency is to turn away but in heaven's name, to what? And that's a really important question. 
Consider, for example, uh, the problem of pain and suffering. You know, pain is a key part of the natural order. If evolution is right, then actually it's essential to the natural order. The whole natural order is underpinned by suffering and death. That's the way that evolution happens. And if there's pain in the world, then we are unusual as creatures that we don't just take pain, but we turn pain into suffering. That is, it has a moral quality to it. We say it should not be this way. Pain, if you like, is the physical response, the thing we feel. But suffering is the moral explanation for it. It shouldn't be this way. But if there is no God in heaven, then there's just the natural order. If it's all by random chance, there is no ought or should um, that things should be like. In other words, we are constructing this, but it's a fantasy. Listen to the author Annie Dillard in her Pulitzer Prize winning book, um, Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek, where she explores this very poignantly. She said, I realize that either this world is a monster or I myself am a freak. Let's consider the former. This world runs on chance and death and power, but I cherish life and the rights of the weak versus the strong. So that must mean that I crawled by chance out of a sea of amino acids and now I whirl around and shake my fist at the sea and cry, shame. We little blobs of soft tissue crawling around on this planet's skin are right and the whole planet is wrong. Let's consider the alternative possibility, she writes. Nature is fine. Nature is all right. It's our emotions and values that are amiss. We're the freaks in the world then. So let's all go and have lobotomies and then we can go back to the creek and live on its banks as untroubled as any muskrat or reed. And she poignantly writes, you first. Do you hear what she's saying? It's a very powerful argument and it's very difficult to dismiss it. She's saying that the natural order of things has pain in it. So why do we say that it shouldn't be this way? Why do we ask the question why? We're completely at odds with the natural order. So therefore, we're the freaks. But if we're the freaks, then just do away with our deep intuitions that it shouldn't be this way. Do away with values of goodness and justice and love and peace and right and wrong. Get rid of those. You first, she says. In other words, we can't. The only way we can make sense of our deep-held intuitions that the world should be different to a world of suffering, that justice matters, that peace matters, that right and wrong matter, that they're real things, and therefore the death of even one child matters, is if there is a God in heaven, a God of justice and peace and right and wrong, who says, yes, it shouldn't be this way, and one day it won't be this way. Otherwise, we're consigned to naturalism, and as Richard Dawkins has said, DNA neither knows nor cares, DNA just is and we dance to its music. So don't throw away belief in God. Secondly, don't stop praying. Job never abandons belief in God in a general sense, and that's really, really important. Throughout Job, he stubbornly holds on to this belief in God, even when it poses some really big questions about God. He works it out within a framework that God is there, God is in control and God is good, which is partly what makes it so tricky and so painful for him. But here's the second thing. It's really striking in the early chapters how the why questions come thick and fast. So in chapter three, he asks these questions. Why did I not perish at birth? Why were the knees there to receive me? Why is there light given to, to those in misery? 
Why is life given to man? In chapter 3, the why questions come quickly. But then it's very interesting how in chapter 6, he moves from questions about God to an engagement with God. Chapter 6, verse 28, Job directly addresses God in prayer for the first time. He says this, But now, be so kind as to look at me. Would I lie to your face? Relent. Do not be unjust. In other words, Job may start with soul searching, and he may start with general questions that are thrown up by a belief in God, but then it gets personal. He starts to engage with God. And similarly here in our chapters, in chapter 16 and, verse seven, and chapter 17, I wonder if you noticed how Job prays, chapter 16, verse 20. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. That's a wonderful description of prayerful lament, prayerful sadness, pouring out my tears to God. And that's what he does in chapter 17, verses 1 to 3. He says, my spirit is broken. My days are cut short. The grave awaits me. Surely mockers surround me. My eyes must dwell on their hostility. Give me, O God, the pledge you demand. Who else will put up security for me? You see, he's praying. In other words, it moves from being a general question of is God there to a very personal question. Are you there for me? And this is hugely significant because I think many of us, when we engage with suffering, engage at a level that is quite generalised. But do we make it personal? In other words, do we personally engage with God? Think of it like this. Let's say that my son Oliver, who's four years old, comes home from nursery one day and he's very, very sad about something. Um, let's say that he feels slighted by one of his friends. They haven't shared their toys with him and so he's crying. And as he is crying, I walk into the room and seeing my son suffering, how could I engage with him? Well, I could stand there slightly removed from the situation and say, son, what's wrong? And listen to him and try to solve the problem for him. Or I could do something different. I could stoop down, kneel down at his level and then give him a hug and let him cry on my shoulder. You see, they're two very different responses. One is slightly general. The other is very, very personal. And prayer is that personal engagement with God. Because ultimately, we're going to see in the book of Job that what comforts Job is not answers that he gets from God. It's really challenging that as the book goes on and when God finally responds, God does not give Job the answers to the many, many questions that he's been asking. God does not lift back the veil and show him everything that happened in chapter one. But God does engage with Job on a personal level. In other words, God gets personal. And so Job says at the end in chapter 42, verse 5, a very significant verse. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. To put it another way, he doesn't get all the answers about God, but he gets God. He gets God showing up. And of course, God shows up in Job, but supremely God shows up in the person of Jesus Christ. Part of what makes Christianity utterly unique amongst all the world religions is this. God doesn't send answers or wisdom or doctrine about life's big questions. God sends his son. In other words, 
He sends himself. He gives himself to us. God gets personal. And so when we pray, we are personally connecting with God in the power of the Spirit, an intimate connection. God really is with us. One of Jesus' great names is Emmanuel. It means God with us. So do you move from the general to the very personal? Do you engage with God? When I was a younger minister and I would um, go into pastoral situations, I think on reflection that often my main concern would be going in and trying to give people solutions, um, trying to answer all their questions, trying to show them different verses of scripture that would speak into their situation. And there's something that's good and right about that. But now I notice, you know, years later, and I think after many more pastoral situations, that my, my goal really when I go to see people who are grieving is very, very different. The main thing that I long for now is to ensure that they are praying to God, to point them to God, not so much to answer their questions, but to establish or re-establish or to foster their relationship with God. Often I will take them to the Psalms because there you see the psalmist connecting with God. Often I will pray with them and ask them, have they prayed? Are they able to pray? And if they're not, I will say, why don't you pray with me to reconnect them with God? Because what our hearts really need is not so much answers from God, but what we need is God. And wonderfully, in Jesus Christ, we get God. So pray, not so much to get things from God, but pray to get God. If you don't know what to pray for, just talk to him about how you're feeling. Tell him, he already knows, but there's something so powerful about speaking to him. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So don't stop believing in God. Don't stop praying to God. And lastly, look to your witness in heaven. Look to your witness in heaven. As Job wrestles with his questions and as he wrestles in prayer, there are moments where he seems to kind of rise up out of the valley of suffering and despair and the sunlight breaks through the clouds is that there are kind of high points, if you like. We're going to see one of the great high points next week in chapter 19 when Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. But in this passage, in chapter 16, verse 19, the sun breaks through. Job says, even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend. As my eyes pour out tears to God on behalf of a man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. Now, when we see a verse like this and we know the full revelation of Scripture in the New Testament and the person of Jesus Christ, then, of course, we think this is remarkable. How can Job speak like this? Does he know everything about Jesus, our great witness in heaven? Does he know that Jesus is indeed our intercessor who stands and pleads our case before God the Father in heaven? Well, I think this is one of these examples where Job is speaking more truly than he himself fully understands. 2 Peter 1 verse 21 puts it like this, that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. So Job is speaking, but he doesn't understand, I don't think, all of what he's saying. Rather, the Spirit is supremely speaking through him about truths that he hasn't yet fully grasped. So I think Job is probably talking here when he talks about witness. He's personifying it in a kind of metaphorical way. Um, but his witness that he's talking about is what we've already seen about Job. It's the witness of his life. Job's witness before the heavenly courtroom is he's saying not that he's perfect. Remember, Job is a sinner like everyone else. But we saw last week, Mark showed us that there's a difference between being perfect 
and being blameless. To be blameless is to show that he is trusting in God. We've already seen in chapter one that Job offered sacrifices to God for his sins and for the sins of his family as God had instructed. In other words, Job's witness before God is not saying I've done nothing wrong, but saying I've offered sacrifices for everything that I've done wrong and everything that my family have done wrong. And since God, you have assured me that you will accept my sacrifices. I am blameless before you. So I don't understand why you seem to be punishing me or seem to be angry at me. He's saying that is his witness. And as he speaks and as he prays it out, he personifies that witness as an intercessor, as a friend um, who pleads with God. And the spirit takes those words because, of course, Job is speaking more truly than he fully realises. Because what is wonderful as he personifies this witness is that we really do have in the person of Jesus Christ a witness who stands in heaven. We really do have an intercessor, one who stands between us and God, who pleads our case in heaven. Jesus stands there as the great sacrifice offered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. Our confidence before God as we approach his throne is not that we're perfect. No, our confidence is that Jesus Christ has died for us and that we are trusting in him. And if we're trusting in him, we are blameless. We are forgiven. He has died so that we might have life. He was cut off and rejected so that we might approach God's throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy to help us in our time of need. He was forsaken so that we might know with great assurance that no matter the suffering we face in our lives, we are deeply, deeply loved. And it's really interesting when we use that phrase that um, God pleads, sorry, on behalf of man, he pleads with God as one pleads for a friend. We often talk about Jesus offering a plea to God. And there's a challenge with the way that we use that word in English because plea can describe two things. It can describe a kind of sense of, please God, would you forgive my, this son or this daughter of yours. You know, so Jesus is there kind of pleading with God, please forgive them because of my sacrifice. Please would you do it? As though there's some ambiguity about whether God the Father might do it or whether there's some reluctance on behalf of God the Father. Sometimes you might think that, that Jesus is the nice one who pleads our case and God the Father is strict and austere, but that's not the vision here. Instead, the word plea here is being used in a legal sense. It's a courtroom phrase. When someone enters a plea, and the plea that is being entered in the courtroom of heaven on our behalf and that God the Father, the perfect judge, is pleased to accept is a plea of not guilty. Because God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit have all been united in one great work, which is the work of salvation. As Jesus dies on the cross, he pays. And here's the thing we know about justice. When the penalty has been paid, Double jeopardy means it can never be paid again. Once paid for all. So Jesus doesn't stand in the heavenly courtroom saying to the Father, please would you forgive Pete Nicholas. He stands there much more strongly with a strong plea saying, Heavenly Father, justice has been done. You must forgive him and the Father is pleased to accept that plea because he's just. We can have confidence that we are forgiven because Jesus Christ has died for us. He died once for all, the righteous from the unrighteous, 
to bring us to God. As the words of that great hymn put it, before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. In other words, he is always my witness in heaven if I trust in him. So don't stop believing God. Don't stop praying to God and look to your witness in heaven, Jesus Christ. That's the strong and the perfect plea of the gospel. As I close, two ways that this makes a difference to us in our suffering. The first way is that it is very deeply ingrained in the human psyche that we think if we are suffering, it is because we have done something wrong and God is angry at us. It's why so much of traditional religion teaches this. You must have done something wrong. It's either karma or it's the judgment of the gods or it's judgment from God. And when we feel that, um, if you like, when Satan accuses us of that in our conscience and says, look at all the things you've done wrong. Um, God is probably angry. That's why you're suffering. That's why this bad thing has happened to you. How do you deal with that? Well, the only way you deal with that is by looking to your witness in heaven. You see Jesus Christ there at the right hand of the Father, having achieved all that he's achieved on the cross, having paid the price for you. And you say, God can't be angry at me because Jesus suffered and died for me. I know God loves me. Whatever else is going on in suffering, and there may be real mystery, I know it's because God doesn't, um, hasn't stopped loving me. I know it's because that God is not angry at me because Jesus died for me and therefore I'm a son and a daughter. I'm loved and I'm cherished. You need to preach that to yourself. Believe that if you trust in Jesus. And if you don't trust in Jesus, that is a powerful reason to come to Jesus so that you can be sure that God is not angry at you because Jesus has paid the price for all of our sin. You stand in Jesus Christ forgiven, blameless, a beloved son or daughter. Secondly, when we suffer, it can feel like God is not answering our prayers. One of the powerful phrases that is sometimes used about prayers when we're suffering is that heaven feels silent to us. And sometimes we may pray for things that don't come about. We may pray for an end to coronavirus and be scratching our heads as to why it hasn't ended yet. Maybe you've got loved ones who are suffering and you're praying for an end to their suffering and it seems like the Lord hasn't answered that prayer yet. How is it then that you can be assured that God is hearing your prayers? And even though there's mystery in his will, he's not ignoring you, that heaven isn't silent, that God is listening, that he does love you, that he will answer. Well, you can only be confident because you have a witness in heaven, Jesus Christ, who is there, meaning that your prayers always hit home. As it says in Hebrews 4, verses 14, 16, this is a great verse to memorize in these times. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. God has not blocked us. He's not unfriended us. He's not screening our calls. He is hearing us and he's acting. We might not fully understand how, but he's giving us his presence and his love and reassuring us that he's there for us, a loving father in heaven. 
So don't throw away your belief in God. Don't stop praying to God and look to your witness in heaven. That's how Job walked through the valley and came out the other side. And that will help us walk through this valley as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, how we praise you for Job's example. That though we didn't get everything right, yet we see a wonderful example of a man who perseveres, who won't give up on you just as you never give up on him. And who keeps praying to you because what he wants in his suffering is you. You are the great answer to suffering. And he looks to his witness in heaven and speaks more truly than he knew. And so we can look to Jesus, our great witness in heaven, who pleads our case before you and gives us confidence to approach your throne of grace. Um, give us that confidence by your spirit, we pray. Reassure us of your love for us. Comfort us in the midst of this challenging season, we ask. For Jesus' sake. Amen.